For the episode today, I'm thrilled to welcome Anton Colasso, a managing partner at Valor Capital, the leading U.S.-Brazil cross-border multi-stage VC firm, whose portfolio includes over 15 tech unicorns, including the likes of GymPass, Olist, CargoX, and Loft. Prior to Valor, Anton spent nine years in Google, launching operations for various divisions in India, Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina. Anton, it's my greatest pleasure to have you as a guest. Welcome to the J-Curve. Thanks very much. No, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being with me. I'm going to start with a little bit on you. Tell me, how did you make your way into the world of tech and venture capital and come to join Valor as a partner? So my career was definitely not a straight line path. I'll put it that way. It's definitely a circuitous path to where I am now. I was an engineer undergraduate. I did mechanical and aerospace engineering as well as public international affairs. So I did have a somewhat of a technology background to start out with. But then I went into all sorts of different paths. I did healthcare consulting. I moved out to Asia to do project finance, came back to do my MBA in the US, and then came up to Silicon Valley to work for Goldman to do tech banking. Of course, that was right when the tech crisis hit. And so I actually moved over to Yahoo, went to Google for nine years, doing a lot of emerging markets work there. And then it was a connection of somebody I worked with whose husband called up and said, we're thinking about doing a venture fund in Brazil. What do you think? So that's kind of how it happened. I, after many, many conversations, finally agreed to do this and have been doing it for a decade now. So it's been nine years in Google, and then you jumped straight on the other side of the table. How was that for you? How was that experience of transitioning? Yeah, so it was nine years of Google, a little bit all over the place. It was Latin America, it was Asia, and then back in the US. The transition, it was interesting because Google had changed a lot since I joined. Google, when I joined, was fewer than a thousand people. By the time I left, it was something like 55,000 people. The company was very different in some ways, but I had always gotten the opportunity to kind of do startups in different areas. So starting up an office in India and then Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, et cetera, and then starting new business lines and things like that. I felt like I was kind of doing startups within the bigger scheme of Google. And then going to the other side of investing, it took a little bit of getting used to because first of all, you are not only investing, so you're on the other side, but you're also doing a startup. You're really starting up a business and investing in other startups. You have to start up the infrastructure for the business. You're starting from scratch on everything. You don't have any infrastructure to help you. And then also, it's one of those things where when you're in an operating business, you see results daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. In our business, it's much longer timeframes and you have much less control. A lot of effort goes into picking who you're going to back. And then you really count on your founders to be able to manage those businesses. It's a different perspective. The flip side to that is, though, from our perspective, is what we get to see a wide variety of different businesses. When you're in a company, you're very focused on a very narrow part of the industry, whereas we get to look at things in different sectors on a daily basis. There's much more variety in that respect. It's a different kind of beast. In terms of emerging markets, what got you so excited then and what keeps you so excited and so bullish around emerging markets? Look, the leap to start this 10 years ago was not necessarily evident, but I think from my perspective, it was, if you look at a market like Brazil, 200 million people, very entrepreneurial, very open to technology, you knew that something was going to happen in the internet space. The venture and startup ecosystem was still fairly nascent at the time, but you knew it had to happen at some point. You could see the rest of the world where it was happening. So it was a little bit of a calculated risk in that perspective. What I like is that you're seeing an ecosystem grow and massive opportunities. You've got phenomenal entrepreneurs. Brazil is not unique in that manner, but the U.S. is not unique in that manner. There's great entrepreneurs everywhere in the world. Why not work with the best entrepreneurs you can find anywhere in the world? And for us and for me in Brazil, it was exciting because it was a market that was just starting to hit that curve. I'd seen at Google how it could take off. 
it was exciting to work in a market like that where you could almost be a bigger fish in a smaller pond that was growing rather than a small fish in a big pond. When you have 1,300 VCs in the U.S. versus a handful in Brazil, that was what excited me about the opportunity. And I still think there's massive opportunity. I think we're just scratching the surface. If I look at Brazil, I see it as having had several stages of evolution in its ecosystem because the early companies were really e-commerce. They were copycats of other models, as it's called tropicalized for Brazil. You then had what we like to call business process innovation, a lot of processes where you could add technology to it and it makes it much more efficient. But I think we're still getting to the phase where you're seeing real technology being built out of Brazil that's going to be on a global stage. If you look at Israel, because they have a smaller market, they build for the world. You have a company like Waze, which is bought and put on a global platform and was massively successful. I think we're getting to that stage in Brazil too. There's just a couple examples of companies that made global successful businesses and Jim Pass is one of them. I think Brazil mm -hmm. has the similar problem as U.S. do, which is the problem of the big enough domestic market. You see that is going to change? And if so, why do you think this is going to change? I think there's going to be a combination. I think there's still going to be massive opportunities in Brazil alone, and you can build big companies in Brazil alone. You can also build big companies for Latin America. That's going to be sufficient in a lot of ways. I do think that there will be models that come out of Brazil that could be put on a global scale as well. We've seen some of our companies, you mentioned Jim Pass, which is started in Latin America, went to Europe, went to the US. It's truly a global company. I think you'll see companies that will go from Brazil to the US, but I also think over time, you'll see more companies that are going to other countries that are similar to them. For example, we invested in a company called Migo. Their team was based in Silicon Valley. Their first market was Nigeria. And their second market was Brazil, because there are a lot of commonalities amongst the markets and financial services. I think you will see more examples of that over time, where you'll see companies that are starting in Latin America, maybe go to Southeast Asia or vice versa, because the commonalities in the markets in some ways. And once you have teams that can help those companies expand to those regions more easily, you're going to see it happen more often. When you see the businesses emerge in Africa, you see the businesses emerge in Europe, and you see how that applies to a domestic market in Brazil, that gives you an edge, both as building bridges for startups, but also bringing the smarts to the money. Why do you think there are so few venture capital investors that exploit cross-border VC model? There aren't a lot in Brazil. We see some of these in Asia. A former colleague of mine and friend is doing Australia, US. I don't know the reason why there's not as much. I think there are a few that are trying. For us, as you said, we think the advantage is massive because you can see trends that happen in other markets. And you can also bring to bear financial as well as human resources to the companies in your market. Something that's been very advantageous for us in the early days is to really be able to bring expertise from outside the market. When you have an ecosystem that's just evolving, you don't have some of the advantages that more mature markets have. More mature markets have entrepreneurs who have done it several times. They have a whole depth of product managers who have done it at money companies and you can tap into it. For a nascent market like Brazil, you don't have that. But to be able to bring that from outside to help is very valuable. Why that's not happened more often? I don't know. If your experience hasn't been that way in the past, then it's harder to do. All of us, Valor, all the partners and so on, have worked in multiple markets in the past. It's in our DNA in some ways. I spoke to a number of founders that you backed before the episode. Pretty much everybody agreed that you are this rare breed of a venture capitalist who does not push them to grow at all costs. And right now it's a no-brainer. Nobody is pushing anymore. But in the <laughs> yeah, last It turns out months, well right now, yeah. <laughs> But in the last couple of years, it was grow, grow, grow mentality. How do you balance that? How do you 
balance this necessity to deliver the venture rate of growth with the desire of the founders to build something that's sustainable. I've always been more cautious in this angle. Maybe it's because I've seen several downturns in various parts of my career, but I really believe in unit economics. I think the unit economics are critical to building a lasting business. Also, my focus is not short-term. It is building sustainable businesses that are going to be successful in the long term. You do want to have that rate of growth. If you invest in businesses that have huge markets and are disruptive and have opportunities, you will see that growth. Is it going to happen in one year? Probably not. And that's okay. Is it going to happen over five years? Yes. That's what I'm more focused on is five, 10 plus years. Can they have a big business, which has very positive unit economics and can survive as a very exciting company. Now, there are companies that are survived and have succeeded that have been very unprofitable. Look at Amazon. Amazon was highly unprofitable for many years. But for me, that's more the exception than the rule. And there are consumer products that grow, 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 and then they get sold for a good amount of money, which I think is great. But my philosophy has always been to really focus on more of the unit economics than anything else, because I want to build sustainable long-term businesses. Uh, and I think that's what's critical. Again, I don't think it's necessarily a trade-off per se. Maybe if you want to look at it in a one-year window or for a two-year window, maybe. But if you're looking at it in a more realistic five, six plus year window, I think it's not really a trade-off. How do you escape the FOMO? Venture capital is a active business. It's like Absolutely everything right. around you just like, oh, the valuation step up is like 5x, 10x. How do you shut this down and focus on sustainability and focus on long-term? Look, last year in Latin America was very hard. There was so much money coming into the market. Do we always make the right that's not always. We're not perfect. No VC is perfect. And if they tell you they are, that's not true. But it is a constant push that we have internally to have these arguments and these discussions around, is this really sustainable? And now everyone's looking at it very closely. They're all firms are looking at it. How much runway do you have? What are you in out? Unit economics. How do you get to break even? Those are all the things that people are asking themselves right now. So you're right. There is definitely FOMO. And there have definitely been times when you look at a company getting a lot of attention that people are very excited about it. And you look at the numbers and you're like, I don't understand how this can work in the long run. Personally, I will try not to back those companies. I try not to get involved in the FOMO. Are we human and do we sometimes? Absolutely. Do you get excited by the shiny object? Sure. But we do really try to look at unit economics and what's the long-term implication of things. You guys invest across different stages of the financing. What does sustainability mean when you evaluate the startup that has no revenue or just started to generate revenue versus when it's already growing Series B plus company? How do you think about sustainability across the stages? Yeah, early on, we're willing to give a lot more leeway to figuring out the unit economics. Early on, you have to look at the market, the competitive landscape, the team itself a lot. So you are more counting on the founders to figure it out in some way or the other, but you do want to make sure that they have a plan that seems to make some sort of sense. Now, we know that those plans are probably going to get changed about 20 times in the first three years. When it comes to a Series B, by that point, they've got the product market fit. They know what market they're going after. It's more of a question of, is this a sustainable growth trajectory? If you put more money into marketing or into sales, is that incrementally going to grow their business for every $1 you put in, is it going to grow $2 of revenue or whatever? And do they have margins that they are going to get better and they're getting more efficient in their business over time? You have a lot more data off of which you can actually make the assessment. That's where the difference is. Now, Valor has what, 17 unicorns in portfolio? Maybe. Yeah. You've done the analysis more than I have. <laughs> Definitely. Super impressive. You guys started back in 2014. What are some of the key learnings over the course of these years? And how would you think about yourself as an investor? Look, we've learned a lot. We actually started in 2012. Our first fund was a 2014 vintage, but we started investing on our own prior to that. 
we always have been a cross-border fund, which means 20% of our investments are from outside of what was Brazil, now Latin America. That was to add some additional value to our investors. Usually those are a little bit later stage. Usually they have additional opportunities for exits, as well as connecting us to the market in the US or Europe or Israel to bring to Brazil. Early on, we were very adamant that whatever money we invested had to go into Brazil-specific opportunity. But we learned very quickly after making very serious mistakes of not investing in things was, first of all, when you have the opportunity to invest in something relatively early, by the time they're ready to go to Brazil, the value has gone up X-fold. So you missed out on huge amounts of value and growth. Secondly, it's very hard to time exactly your investment with when a company should go to Brazil. And you don't want to force anything unnatural for the business. On the early stage side, and we learned a lot about how to judge people. The early stage is about people. And it's about how do you judge not only the character, but the strength of the people who you're investing in. Are they able to deal with very difficult times? And we've gone through a lot of difficult times in Brazil and Latin America and world actually over the last several years. How do they deal with that? How do they adapt their business? Can they take care of their team? Can they be forward thinking? Do they have the personality they can raise future funds when they have to go back out to the market in good and bad times? And those are all things that there's not a litmus test necessarily, but it's something you hopefully gain better perspective with more time and experience. We've also expanded our network of partners and investors and really tap into them for their expertise. There's no way we have a monopoly on all wisdom here. We are very much of a belief in the broader network, the broader team, the broader partnerships that we have to make everything better for our companies. Those are some of the lessons we've learned over time. How do you judge the founders? Now it's probably a little bit easier because you have more time to build a conviction around the team. But let's say in the last couple of years, what was the process? What were the questions that helped you build this conviction? Part of it is how they present themselves. It's how they present their business. It's how they present what they've done in the past, how they explain their previous work history. It's also just tapping into our network to get reference checks on the founders. Talk to people that they've worked with in the past, how they dealt with situations how they dealt with controversial topics or issues or when they've been stressed. Again, it's more art than science. There's no perfect answer. I think this is a business that will always be somewhat subjective as approach to early stage, but we try to triangulate as much as we can with different pieces of data. If you were to isolate three qualities of the founders that have high chances to be successful as Valor's founders, what would those be? One is communication skills. You need to be able to communicate externally to your investors, to future investors, and also internally very well to their employees, explain things to their employees, why are they doing certain things? Because there are going to be tough messages that they have to give. Another thing is figuring out, do you trust this individual? Because as I said, this is a long-term relationship. Do you trust that they're going to do the best for you as an investor, for the company, for their employees, but also do you trust that they will communicate with you both good and bad? We don't want to be surprised by anything. And if we are aware of things that are not going well earlier, we can be helpful. I think one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make is assuming that they shouldn't tell their investors things that are not going well. And I can't stress enough that is the wrong mentality to go into investor relationship because the whole point is once an investor invests in you, they trust you. Will they have differences of opinion? Of course. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be willing to have the discussion. That trust is a critical piece. A third thing is really getting a sense of how well they understand their business model. How do they describe their business model? How do they describe the metrics that are going to drive the business model? How do they understand the risks? How do they understand how to mitigate those risks? 
Those are all very important things to understand. It's great to have a founder who is just so gung-ho and bullish. You want to see that excitement. But you also want to understand that they have some sense of, yeah, this may not go as I'm thinking. How do I understand what the levers are that I need to pull in case something doesn't go right? You mentioned trust is one of the important factors. What do you do when you lose trust in the founders? It depends what the reason is. If they were just worried about telling you that something that wasn't working out, that's a conversation you can have. You can say, look, you've got to understand I'm here with you, but I can't help you if I don't know what's wrong. That's a conversation. Now, if for some reason they are being purposefully malicious or something like that, then that's a bridge that's crossed. That's very hard to come back from, frankly. In terms of markets in Brazil, it's about 40% of companies that received venture capital funding were fintech companies, which makes sense. Fintech is one of the fundamental needs of the population. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the interesting opportunities that you see emerging, maybe as a result of the current recession and pandemia that make you really bullish on the opportunity in Brazil? You know, it's interesting early on, some of our biggest segments were fintech, as you mentioned, health and wellness, logistics, and education. I think education is always going to be an opportunity. If you think about the future of a country, it's always around how do you educate your people well. And there's also this tie between education and earning potential. So I think that will always be an opportunity. If you look at Brazil, there's no different there. There's huge opportunities. There's huge numbers of people that want to get educated, better education or better educational services, as well as people who want to have ways to improve their earning potential through some sort of training. We've invested in several companies like that. Some of the sectors that are now coming on that we've been waiting to hit a scale are things in agriculture. If you look at Brazil, for example, massive agricultural industry, but very little technology involved. I think we're starting to see very interesting companies that are coming in that space, both in Brazil and outside of Brazil, where you can bring them to help the market there. Some of the other ones that we're very excited about are things in climate. I think now you've finally seen an opportunity for climate. There have been a number of companies in the past that have tried to tackle this. I think globally, the markets were not ready to receive those. I think they are now. Governments are creating paths for them to be utilized more easily. And I think that there's just a lot more attention on it now. Hopefully it's not too late. Financial services will continue to be big, but I think financial services will probably be not only a vertical, but will be a horizontal because frankly, so many companies are going to have to have some sort of financial piece to what they do. You'll continue to see that. SaaS is going to be still continue to be large, so B2B SaaS. I think we still just scratched the surface in Brazil and Latin America on SaaS products, and there's a variety of different areas there. So those are some of the ones that I'm excited about that we're looking at actively. We've done a lot in crypto as well. Crypto has obviously had a big fall right now, but that also creates opportunities to figure out really what are the winners there and, and what are the opportunities. Again, blockchain can make things much more efficient if utilized properly. When you evaluate the industries... How much of a role regulations and the policy of the regulators play in terms of how you make investment decision? Sometimes massively. We invest in a company called Stone, which went public. It's a credit card acquirer company. And the reason for that was that at the time, the market was an oligopoly of basically three players, which were owned by the banks. And the government was saying, no, we need to deregulate this a little bit more, allow other players in. So we saw a phenomenal entrepreneur, an opportunity there, which was open and created by the government. And then that took advantage of that. We've seen that in several other industries as well, some in financial services. The opposite plays true too, in education. The current government has been much less promoting of education than the former one was. That reduced some of the opportunities that we saw in education. Now, there's an election happening in October, November this year. Could that open up opportunities again? Potentially. So yes, it's something that we very much are looking at to see where do the regulatory winds lead? Because in some cases, it's been industries or segments that have been stifled because 
for regulatory reasons, they've not been allowed to expand. If they're suddenly allowing that to expand, then we see new opportunities. Insurance was that way too. They had an insurance sandbox, as they like to call it, where they were going to test new technologies, new opportunities. When you look at this last 10 years of the market evolution in Brazil, what are the elements that surprised you the most? What is it that you didn't see coming? Yeah, I think last year was a surprise as to how much it grew. Last year was basically triple the previous year in the venture industry, which was great in some ways to see that people are finally seeing that putting LATAM in Brazil on the map. We've been banging the drum for years that this is an opportunity. This is really great. It, it was great to see people finally coming to that realization as well. Unfortunately, it maybe happened too quickly. I would rather see a kind of a steady growth rather than a kind of a huge blip. And then probably this year, we'll be back to the level we were two years ago, back to a third of what we were last year. Because the problem is when you have such massive excitement so rapidly, is that you don't have kind of that sustainability. Again, you get people coming in and then jumping out again because you haven't built that kind of momentum. That's one of the things we've always said is we're long-term players in the market. We saw an economic downturn. We saw a president impeached in Brazil. We've now seen COVID and now we're seeing a recession, a global kind of recession, but we're in for the long-term. So I think that sustainability is important for a market to grow. I was surprised by the pace of excitement last year. And unfortunately it's kind of regressed this year. Understandably, I think it's regressing everywhere, but I do think that it will be good to have more players who are committed to the market for the longer term. That's what's going to make the ecosystem sustain its steady growth over time. Besides this opportunistic capital that flows in the region where the region is spiking and then flows out of the region during the recession, what are the major headwinds that still inhibit the growth of tech and VC ecosystem in Brazil and Latin America in general? Yeah, One of the reasons that people are very scared to invest in Brazil is sometimes just the regulatory piece, which is not only by industry, but generally labor laws are very strict. It's much more difficult to set up a company, hire people, let go of people in Brazil than it is in the US, for example. When we were first starting, people said, oh, there's never exits in Latin America. I think we've proved that that's not necessarily true. We've had Stone when it went public was one of the biggest fintech IPOs ever in the NASDAQ. We've had other companies coming out and going public or being bought. There are definitely exits that exist, and I think there will continue to be exits. The NASDAQ has seen that there are Brazilian companies that should be going public on the NASDAQ, which brings liquidity. I think that exits were much more of a concern years ago. Now they're not as big a concern. And I think as a fund, there are different ways to exit too. There are secondary opportunities. When If we've invested early and a company is now series C, D, E, whatever it is, and you've marked it up quite a bit, that's a time when you can take some money off the table as an investor, but keep some of the upside as well. There's definitely ways for exit opportunities for a fund. I don't think that that's necessarily a headwind anymore. But I do think that sustainability of capital is always an important thing. So not having that yet as firm as we would like is possibly a headwind. There's always headwinds in Latin America and probably the world with regulatory issues. If uh, government changes, you never know which way it'll flip and what they're going to allow, what they won't allow. That's another potential for headwinds. There's a like different perspective of where we are in the cycle and how that recession cycle with, that we're in compares to the prior ones. What's your take on that? What's the difference and what are the similarities between the current recession and the ones that Brazil and maybe global market have been through before. Yeah, it's interesting. This is clearly different than COVID. COVID was a very different sort of downturn. The initial fear was that everything was going to shut down like it did now. And I think instead, because there was a lot of fiscal stimulus by the governments, there was a lot of capital in the markets or capital in individuals' pockets. 
and actually helped some industries like e-commerce suddenly was booming much faster than it had ever been expected. Travel obviously was impacted on the negative side much more than it is now. I think by segment, it's very different. What this one is showing is a much broader based effect. It's impacted by a number of different things. You have supply chains that have been affected to varying degrees. That makes the imbalance in supply and demand much more difficult. There's questions around what is the supply, how long will it take for the supply to arrive, et cetera. You have a war which has created issues around global fuel prices. Obviously, there's much more important things with people dying in the war, but just from an economic perspective, trying to shut off Russian oil, that's affected oil prices, which affects all sorts of products because of transportation costs. And then you have governments which are trying to figure out how to deal with inflationary pressures right now. So the inflationary pressure issue is, I think, a big one. All that leads to just uncertainty. And that's the worst thing you can have for as investors is uncertainty. Uncertainty, everyone pulls back. And so as for founders, they're dealing with investors who just don't know what they want to do with their money yet. There's a period right now, that's why we're talking to all of our companies about extending their runway and figuring out how long they can run their businesses. That's why they've had to cut costs and things like that. We don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know what the extent of it is going to be, how deep this goes. In a lot of cases, some of us have seen things like this before, but a lot of entrepreneurs have never seen a recession of this nature. They saw COVID, which was bad, obviously, but it was a very different thing and in some cases helped their businesses and created tailwinds for their business. But a lot of entrepreneurs have never seen a downturn like this. 2008, 2009, maybe with the housing market in the U.S., it affected some of the other countries, but not as much in other countries as in the U.S., 2000, the tech bubble burst, which was bad. But you go back to the 80s, 87 kind of time frame. That it's more similar, I guess, to what we're seeing now. And we haven't seen inflation like this in a long, long time. And then for startups, they're seeing these inflationary pressures. They've seen salaries rise quite a bit. Their costs have gone up. They don't know how much they can actually increase prices also. Inflation would say you should be able to increase your prices, but there's a question about what's that elasticity of demand. So there's a lot of questions that they're dealing with right now and how to balance all that and manage all that. Do you think we've touched the floor yet? No. I don't know where the floor is, but I think it could go worse. That's my uninformed opinion. (laughs) What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned while doing business in Brazil across different market cycles? I think one thing that was surprising to me was the disconnect between the tech market and macro in a lot of cases. We saw a downturn in Brazil a number of years ago. And if you saw the tech market continue to go up because tech is actually more needed when things are going bad, because when things are going badly, you need technology to make things more efficient. While it seems counterintuitive, it's actually a perfect time for technology to make processes more efficient. If you look at a Brazil, for example, which had a lot of very inefficient processes, Technology really helped companies deal with some of those downturns more efficiently. It makes sense logically, but at the time, it was a little bit counterintuitive when we're thinking about it. What else? Not surprising, but I think the platforms really make a huge difference in emerging markets for growth. And when I mean platforms, I'm talking about, for example, when we first started, mobile phone penetration and smartphone penetration in Brazil was very low. You saw smartphone penetration growing and growing exponentially in Brazil. That created all sorts of new opportunities very rapidly. One of our companies is called Frecci, which used to be called Cargo X. They essentially connect truckers, and there are thousands of independent truckers in Brazil, to freight. Because 60% of the time, they're dropping off freight, going to a truck stop, with a little piece of paper in the window saying, I've got an empty truck to take this, I'm leaving now, and weren't getting filled up. And so 60% of the time, they're going back empty. Highly inefficient. It's just crazy inefficiency. The mobile phone allows that marketplace to exist on your phone somewhere. The efficiency that's created by that, the business opportunity that's created by that is just immense. These platforms and how 
game-changing they can be, especially in an emerging market like Brazil, are fascinating to watch and see how quickly that adapts the market. Now I would love to move to the rapid fire section. I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. The first question is, what's your biggest investment miss to date and what is the key learning out of it? We had the opportunity to invest in Airbnb very early on. We met them here in San Francisco and could have invested in them. That was just a huge miss. That was when we were in the phase of saying we had to do something that was going to go to be Brazil focus and stuff like that. The learning was really, look, if it's a good opportunity, and even if your money's not going to go directly into Brazil right away, if we can be there and be helpful when they do decide to go to Brazil, that's important enough. What's the one book every founder should read and why? I will admit, I'm not a big book reader. I actually read a lot of articles, but I don't read books, so I'm not going to be able to answer that question for you. I would be hypocritical for me to offer a book that I wouldn't read myself. But I do think that there are a lot of articles that are very interesting in general around how to think about managing your business and how you need to think about your business model, especially in a market like this right now. There's very good articles and medium posts that have been written by some very, very bright people. Fair enough. What are the three key pillars of productive VC founder partnership? It's communication, trust, and intellectual honesty. Is having mentors important? And if so, who is your greatest mentor? I think mentors are critically important. I have been lucky enough to have several mentors throughout my career who have typically been my bosses that I've worked with, but I had a, one who was an amazing mentor when I was in my first job out of college. The, the one thing I will say for all the mentors that I've ever had, it's not only the advice they've given me, which has been fundamentally very solid and experience gives you lots of avenues to advice. I think the other thing that I've always appreciated is People who actually care for you as a person. You don't always find that in business, unfortunately. I think that finding somebody who will be very honest with you, very direct in their feedback, but also really spend the time to care about you as an individual is really important. And I will say, actually, most of my best mentors have been women, frankly. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's really nice to hear. Last time you said no to the founder. What was the reason to your no? It was probably, I didn't believe that the market size was large enough for what they were trying to do. Anton, thank you so much for being with me today. It was such a pleasure. Absolutely. No, thank you. It was, uh, it was great to connect, Olga, and I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J-Curve. It was my ultimate pleasure to have Antoine as a guest. To learn more about Valor, go to valorcapitalgroup.com. And to hear more from us, subscribe to our newsletter on thejcurve.com. The J-Curve is also available on all major platforms, including Spotify and Apple. Thank you for being with me today.